Well, for those of you um, that are new here to Sunday nights at God Speak, my name is Zach, um, and it is a pleasure to be able to worship the Lord with you. Um, just letting you guys know, just giving you a little heads up, tonight is a little different. So we've been, we've been going through the last couple of weeks, we've been going through our new series called The Good Shepherd. We've just been learning about how God, Yahweh, Abba, our Father, is a good shepherd that ushers us, the sheep, into his presence. We've been learning really truly about how, how to have a good and solid and healthy relationship with the Lord. We learned that you know, many of our anxieties and many of our worries, they, they're really a result of not abiding and just sitting in the Lord's presence. And so we, we've really been having a good time just soaking up Psalm 23. It's been, it's been lighthearted, I believe. I, I, I truly believe it's been a lighthearted and, and just worshipful series. And we are going to be taking just a quick break from it. Because today is a special day in our nation that was established by Ronald Reagan. It's called Sanctity of Life Sunday. Yeah, amen. We believe in life. And for some of you, you're already in your heads like, dang it. <laughs> The pastor's going to talk about life. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, I just I want to express a few things tonight. If you're new here, uh, you know, if you know me and my preaching style, I don't apologize for what, what's going to be preached tonight, but I do want to let you know it's not every Sunday. I'm not bashing on, you know, uh, pro-choice people. That, that's, that's not my thing, right? Um, but do you know what? How many of you in here are between the ages of 20 and 30? Raise your hand. 20 and 30. Majority of the people in this room are between the ages of 20 and 30. Over 80% of abortions are performed by people between the ages of 20 and 30. And so I believe truly, though it is going to be a hard subject for us to go through, and, and we are, we're, some of you are going to grit your teeth and some of you have already checked me out, right? You guys have already just like checked out, like tuned me out and just like, all right, do you know what? Maybe I'll come next week or maybe I won't come again, but I want to let you know, this is something that us Christians, we really need to get down. And there's, there's, and I, I want to express tonight about the redemption of our Lord. I want to talk about the redemption of our Savior. I want to talk about how he comes and restores things and how he uses his people to restore things and how we as Christians, we want to be on the right side of history. We want to be on the correct side of history on this issue because believe me, in 20 years, my grandchildren are going to be like, Grandpa Zach, I can't believe, like, you're, I can't believe this used to happen. This is, this is obscene. And I'll be like, do you know what? I fought the good fight. There's a lot of good people who, who really fought for the life of children. And, and so it's inevitable, guys, if you look at history, it's inevitable that this, this issue is going to be resolved. And we Christians want to be on the right side of history, amen? amen? And so without further ado, raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. We're going to open up into God's Word. We're going to open up into God's Word. Taking a quick break from our current series, and we're going to be celebrating and talking about and defending life. Defending life. So raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk for a few minutes before we get into the word, but uh, once you get there, just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Put your, put your thumb in it. We'll, we'll get to it soon. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where our launching place will be. And then if you so desire, Psalm 139 as well. I will have all the scripture up here for you to make things easy. 
First Corinthians chapter six and Psalm 139 are going to be our two main texts that we dive into this evening. And before we just go into anything, guys, I want to pray. I want to pray for our hearts. I want to pray that we'd really worship Jesus tonight. Because, you know, ultimately, guys, listen, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. All right? I belong to the kingdom of God party. Okay? And I call it independent, but really, I just, I, I vote by the kingdom of God and what's best for him. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm not trying to usher in any agenda to you guys. I want Jesus to be glorified. All right, and that's, that's what we're all about here. And so I'm going to pray that Jesus would be glorified. Lord, we love you. We, we desire you here. We desire you, Lord. Jesus, I pray that um, for those who have been affected by this sensitive subject, I pray for their redemption in their hearts, that they would feel your love, your overwhelming presence, your daddy-like arms. God, for those of us whose hearts are hardened, maybe, God, I just pray for a softening of my own heart, Lord. This is, this is new ground for me, Lord. Hey, so, Lord, I just pray for my heart as well that I'd be able to receive tonight. And ultimately, Jesus, we pray that your name would be lifted up. That your name would be lifted up, Jesus. We love you and we praise you. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Life. It was Jesus himself who said, I have come that they may have life and life more abundantly. And as a church, we don't only celebrate the life as far as a child's life, and we don't only defend a child's life and their right to live, but we also believe in us adults living a life that's worth living. You see, so, so many of us, we, we, we're so just adamant on life, 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 pro-life, pro-life. But do we live lives that are worth anything? Do we, do we live lives that if we were to say, no, life is good, would, would people be able to say, really? You, you look miserable all the time, right? What good is life? And we believe that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith and our lives, and that in him is substance. And as Christians and in the world in general, I believe when we look at this sensitive subject, we tend to err in one of two ways. And I, I believe this generalization is, it's not definitive, but I, I think it kind of describes some two camps pretty well. Uh, there's one camp that, that we err in, some of us. And I want to explain to you, I've been on both sides of this. I've wrestled in both sides, especially my freshman year of college, right? Because it'll do that to you, right? My freshman year of college, I, I really battled with both of these sides. We err in one way where we are in full blind support of abortion, despite spiritual, scriptural, ethical, and scientific evidence of its destruction. All because we have been conditioned by our society to think that whoever is pro-life also hates women. Because we really have been conditioned to think this way. We've been conditioned to think that I am pro-life. I do not believe in abortion. Therefore, I don't like women. Therefore, I'm a chauvinist. Therefore, I really am not sensitive to the the place where these women are at in in the hard lives that they're leading and the difficult decisions they have to make. So some people err in that way, where despite ethical 
spiritual and scientific evidence that, that, that proves how destructive abortion is, we follow blindly because society just likes to call us bigots if you're pro-life. So some of us err in that camp. I have erred in this camp. Secretly, obviously, because, you know, I work at a church. I can't, I can't say that I'm struggling with this type of stuff, but do you know what? I have. I have indeed wrestled with this. Some of us err in the opposite manner, and I, too, have also erred in this camp where some of us are in ferocious opposition to abortion without any consideration of the women that are going through a hard time in their life. We are in ferocious opposition and and so many are, are willing to call women murderers instead of providing them love and support. And I believe that this is just as heinous I believe that, that people who err on this side are in just as much sin and just as much fault as those who err on this side. Those who say, do you know what? Abortion is totally fine. I completely support it. They're in just as much error as those who say, do you know what? Those women are murderers. Right? I believe both are unhealthy ways of looking at this issue. Both are very, very unhealthy ways to look at it. Both viewpoints have no place, guys. I just want to let you know us as a church, this is, these viewpoints, they have no place in the kingdom of God. They have no place in a God-fearing Christian. Jesus, as we see in scripture, is always in the tension between the two extremes. We see it all throughout scripture. Jesus, he always finds truth in the tension. Always finds truth between liberalism and legalism. I do whatever the heck I want. You have to follow these rules or you're going to hell, Right? Jesus always meets in between in perfect harmony. And I believe us as God-fearing Christians need to express an opposition towards the killing of children while also providing love and support for those who are going through the hardest times of their lives. We can do both. We can love both. We can nurture both. And yelling and legislating morality will not solve the problem. Jesus will. Jesus will. You see, we've been studying about God being a good shepherd, someone who loves and and, and cherishes the lives of his sheep so dearly. And, And before we get into the spiritual and ethical and scientific evidence of why abortion is wrong, because you know what, I can rant about that all day, but that's not the real issue. No matter how much evidence I can give to people, uh, that's never really going to change people's hearts. What we really need to do is establish a foundation of love. The love that Christ has for his sheep and the desire that Christ has for people to have an abundant and full life. And, 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 And some of you already, just I know statistically, at least three or four of you, statistically there are some of you who have been deeply affected by this personally. I've been deeply, deeply affected. And for those of you who have been affected by abortion, whether it was your sister or your mother or you, yourself, or whether it was your girlfriend or your wife, for those of you that have been affected by such such tragedy, no matter whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, it's a tragedy to have to deal with something like this sometimes. But like everything, Jesus redeems, right? And so uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for those of you that have 
turn there. We'll have it up here. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. And this will sound harsh to begin with. It gets better. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Harsh, right? <laughs> Bam, plain. But here's the thing. These are my people. Like, I can run with these folk because do you know what? There's another tons of long lists that I fall under. As far as not inheriting the kingdom of God, Zach Schullabarger is in the top of the list. I can tell you, I've committed some of these sins. And I fall under this camp. And if you were to be honest with yourself, maybe you don't fall under this camp, but you fall under plenty different camps in scripture that say, do you know what? These types of people don't inherit the kingdom of God. And many people, when they look at this, they say, oh, how dare they judge me? And, and we, we tend to back off a little bit. God doesn't get to define me this way. But listen to the next verse in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. So, so, so I, I just, I want to make this so clear because it's so awesome that no sin, I want to lay this groundwork for those of you who have been affected by abortion, for those of you that have been affected by other sins, maybe, maybe that's not the issue for you. You have fallen into gambling, lying, cheating, stealing, fornication, just sexual lust and desires. Maybe you have just dealing with hatred for other people in your heart. And I want to let you know something that there is no sin that escapes the reach of the cross. There is no sin that escapes the reach of God's cross. Absolutely none. Jesus washes us. There is no sin that you can commit that will outweigh God's grace for you. For those of you that have been affected by this and feel this deeply, I want you to know God above all is gracious. He's a gracious God. He is so incredibly gracious. In John 1.16, in John 1.16, he says this, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, which means God gives us enough grace for us to breathe another breath, for us to take another step, to have family and friends. He allows us to live and exist in this beautiful and wondrous creation he calls earth. And then on top of that, he washes us completely clean of any iniquity we have ever committed. All the sins that you can drum up in your head of why you think you're not worthy of God's love. God comes in and he says, here's the thing. I love you way more than your worthiness. No matter what sins you've committed, past, present, or future, I want to dive in. I want to wash you clean. I want to sanctify you. I want to love you. And so there's no sin that can escape God's cross. Jesus' sacrifice proves to you and I that no matter what sin I commit, whether people want to call it murder or stealing or lying, living a fake life, living behind a mask, or maybe it's the sins that somebody's committed against you. Some of you have been victims of heinous sins. 
of evil men and women. That does not escape the reach of Jesus. He wants to restore you and he wants to redeem you. That's God's character. That's God's character. His loving and gracious character is to see people forgiven and redeemed. Secondly, for those that think God is maybe a chauvinist, and what I mean by chauvinist is, oh, God must hate women, right? For those that think God is a chauvinist or, you know, he doesn't want, you know, like these, these children, they'll just be born into hard lives and, and these women, they'll have to deal with kids <laughs> in, a, in, a, in an obvious situation where they won't be able to do it. Why would God want them to be in such a terrible situation? Why would God want them to stay in that? In Psalm 68, verse five, it says, God is a father of the fatherless and protector of widows. God in his holy habitation does so. God settles the solidarity in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. Some would say that God would be cruel to force a woman into a situation where she would have to raise a child when she's not ready. God is a father and a groom to those who don't have fathers and to those who don't have husbands. That's the entire character of God. Everyone's like, why, why is God so, why are Christians so big on just life and, and, and being pro Like, I understand, like, it's kind of a big deal, but why, why do you fixate on that so much? Or why, why do Christians fixate so much on traditional marriage? Why, why do they fixate on that so much? And I'll tell you this, it's because the character of our God in his very being, he is a father and he is a husband. He is a father to those who don't have fathers. He's the comforter to those who have not felt the comfort of a parent. And he is also a husband, a good groom to his bride, the church. And so we wonder why, why God's so adamant on, on, on marriage and family and, and life. It's because in his very being, that's who he is. A father and a husband. A father and a husband. And if we were to just take more cues from our God, and as it declares in Ephesians 5, be imitators of our God, the society would be in much better shape. Unfortunately, we're sinners. But that does not mean we're outside the reach of his sanctification and his, clean, and his cleansing power. We can all enter into this character that the Lord has. And even his motherly aspects in his helper and wife aspects that he has to his character. But that's why, that's why God so... so uh, to say that God doesn't love women because he would make them be in this situation, I would say it's the complete opposite. He is a father who, who has knitted this child together for his purposes, and he wants to see him flourish. And not only that, but he wants to bless the mother with this child and show, and show her the character of a father or a parent, right? He, he wants to reveal his character through these things. And so that's why God is so adamant on that. To, to call God a woman hater for these reasons, it, it's absurd. It's absurd. God is a father to the fatherless. And, and he is the protector of widows. He's the father to the fatherless and the protector of widows. That's who he is. We serve a good God, Right? 
to be as such. And so along those lines, we see in Psalm 139. So if you want to turn to Psalm 139, this is a huge one. Psalm 139, verse 13. David declares this to to the Lord. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written the days fashioned for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are your thoughts towards me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Spiritually and biblically, life doesn't begin at conception. Many pro-lifers will argue that. Life Life begins at conception. When the sperm meets the egg, bam, you got a baby. God would say otherwise. God would say otherwise. That, that life does not begin at conception, it begins at inception. It begins at the point where God said, I'm going to create them. And that was before the foundations of the world. Before the foundations of the world, God had more thoughts towards you individually than all the grains of the sand of the earth. As a not even, not even a fetus yet. God had all of these thoughts towards you. More thoughts he has towards you than you have towards yourself. And you're thinking about yourself 24-7. I was having this discussion with Dane today. I said, even when I'm judging other people, I'm thinking about myself. It's absurd how much we think about ourselves, but God has more thoughts towards you than you have of yourself even. And he has more thoughts towards the unborn than the grains of sand of the earth. I love how he says, your your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. How precious are your thoughts towards me, our God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more than the number of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. You see, your life, every life is cherished by God. Your life, and and for some of you, you've never heard that before. You have never heard that your life is worth something. You've never heard that you are worth it, that God loves you, that he desires you, that he wants you as a father, a good father. Some of you haven't experienced that even. He desires you. He wants you. He has more thoughts towards you than you have towards yourself. That should blow your mind. He wants you so bad. He wants to be with you. He wants to show you what a life is, a real life is. Take heart in that, guys. Take heart in that your God desires you. Your creator, he doesn't see all your sin and all your failures. and They better shape up before I start paying attention to them. No, 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 no. He, he, he says, I want them. I desire them. I will do whatever it takes to get them in my family. I'll do whatever it takes to get them in my family. I will die to get them in my family, to adopt them, to have them. That's God's character, guys. Your life, every life is cherished by God. 
other verses that allude to life being before birth, Genesis 5, 3, Psalm 58, Psalm 51, Job 14 and 15, the list goes on. Life begins before conception and continues on. God ordains it. Not only is this biblically sound as far as life being life and us not getting to define it, but God gets to define it. But scientifically, it's backed as well. I'm just briefly, as briefly as possible, I'm going to just go into some statistics for you. I'm, I'm going to reveal to you, and, and please, just, just try to keep your heart soft before the Lord. Try not to cut off. Because this is really important for us Christians as we go out and we minister to a world where this isn't popular. If you want to be equipped, we can't ignore this. I've tried to ignore it, guys. But it's inevitable. If we're Christians and we're to stand for life, we need to know this stuff. You see, when Roe versus Wade was passed in 1973, this was you know, the, the big case that legalized abortion in the United States. When Roe versus Wade was passed in 1973, there was no sonograms. And what I mean by sonograms is 3D uh, ultrasounds. We weren't able to see the intricacies of human life in the womb. It was pretty much just this black and white blob of tissue. When this, when this law was passed, that's pretty much all we could see unless you wanted to pay like thousands and thousands of dollars. And so the, the common woman that went in for an ultrasound to, to check on her baby, she would just see a blob of tissue. And, and, and if things didn't really line up in her life and things were hard, she'd be like, take it away. They could not see what we see now. At eight weeks, eight weeks, guys, just keep that, that in your head. Eight weeks, eight weeks. Everyone say eight weeks. Eight weeks, okay. Keep, keep the number eight weeks in your head because it's going to be very important later on. At eight weeks, babies do the following in the mother's womb at eight weeks. And this is all, guys, if you want my sources, I'll give them to you. Most of my sources are actually from Planned Parenthood. I want to be unbiased here. No, I just wanted you to know I'm not reading any stupid Christian blogs out there. Right, that someone posts on Facebook out of anger. Okay, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not reading any of that stuff. I'm. I'm, I'm getting this from Planned Parenthood themselves. So you know it's exaggerated in their favor. But even then, these statistics are staggering. At eight weeks, children suck their thumbs. Eight weeks, children suck their thumbs. They respond to sound, even music, in the womb. They begin to have dreams. At eight weeks. Babies begin to have dreams. They can feel pain. For those that get the, the, the fetuses that get their blood drawn, they can, you can actually see them in sonograms, wincing and not wanting to get their blood drawn from the needle because it hurts. They can feel pain. Their heart pumps blood. Their liver makes blood cells. Their kidneys drain fluid. And they even have fingerprints. Eight weeks. Eight weeks. They have fingerprints. At eight weeks, a baby has dreams. Every neurological functioning, every, the brain and the spinal cord all functioning at this point on a very, very simple level, but functioning nonetheless at eight weeks, eight weeks. At 21 weeks with help, the baby can live outside the womb at 20, at 21 weeks, guys, at 21 weeks, a baby is fully functioning 
and, and, and still needs nourishment and to grow inside the womb, but with a little bit of help, it can exist and live outside the womb. At 21 weeks, that's crazy. From eight weeks, all of these intricate parts of a human being, you would never deny that that's a human being at eight weeks. Fingerprints, dreams, pain, responding to music. Over 90% of abortions are performed between 12 and 24 weeks. Over 90% of abortions are past eight weeks. 12 to 24 weeks. When I read this, I started weeping. These children, I, I, I don't want you to feel guilty if you've been a part of this. Like I said, Jesus redeems. This is something we need to know, right? This is something you're not being taught in your classes. And like I said, most of my statistics are from Planned Parenthood themselves. This quote is... Um, from Planned Parenthood and uh, Guttmacher Institute. And uh, we have a quote up here that I'll have Nathan put up. This is a quote. The reasons women give for having an abortion underscore their understanding of the responsibilities of parenthood and family life. Three-fourths of women cite concern for or responsibility to other individuals. Three-fourths say they cannot afford a child. Three-fourths say that having a baby would interfere with work, school, or the ability to care for other dependents. And half say they do not want to be a single parent or are having problems with their husband or partner. Statistically speaking, the majority of abortions are not done out of concern for the woman's health. Statistically speaking, most abortions that are performed are not done because the woman has experienced health, health issues or she's a victim of some rape. Statistically speaking, that's under 5% of abortions. It is purely out of convenience. It's purely out of convenience. It'll interfere with work. It'll interfere with my job. It'll interfere with my relationship with my boyfriend or my husband. Ah, oh, man, I, I, I've got other kids that I, I got to take care of. I got a whole future ahead of me. You see, we, we've been conditioned to think that if we're pro-life, we're woman haters. But, but the reality is the woman's safety, that's under 5%. The majority of it. It's convenience. It's out of convenience. Here's a quote from, here's another quote from Mary Elizabeth Williams. Some of you maybe have heard of her. She's uh, kind of a a poster child for Planned Parenthood in many organizations as such. She she is very well known. She has been on Oprah, if that'll tell you anything. She's, she's, uh, She's very well known. She's written many books and she's written many articles on um, women's rights and and abortion and and all of the like. And uh, I will read you an excerpt um, from one of her articles. And the article is titled, So What If Abortion Ends Life? That's the title of her article. Okay, It it wasn't some Christian convoluting her words. This is straight from her article that I'm, I'm quoting. And so I'll read it to you guys. Yet I know... Throughout my own pregnancy, she is a mother, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside me. 
I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life. And it doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. So, so listen, scientifically, even those who are pro-choice recognize it is a baby. It is a human life. We need to get past the whole like, oh, it's, it's not really technically a human being until it's this many weeks. Nobody's doing that anymore. Right? Even, no, even pro-choicers, they're, they're not even saying that anymore because scientifically, it's just not real. It's just not a thing. It, it, everything needed for life, it happens at conception. And that's not just pro-lifer speaking. That's pro Everyone across the board who has kept up with their research and who has kept up with even liberal things like the New York Times, which I read usually, I'm telling you, nobody anymore is saying that it's not a child no matter what camp you're in. Nobody is saying that it's not a child. So we're going to continue in this quote. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like the death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside her, period, always, period. There was a similar book published, um, kind of similar to Mary Elizabeth Williams' article. There was a similar book published in 1925 discussing the inequality of human life and how some uh, human life trumps other human life and how some are just created to be a little more superior and that those who are more fortunate and less autonomous do really are less of humans, such as handicaps. There's a very similar article, a very similar tone. It was discussing this this book that was written in 1925. It, It discussed on the inequality of life and that one people group being killed for the benefit of another group was permissible and should be initiated in a country's policy. That book was called Mein Kampf, written by Adolf Hitler. One life that is less autonomous is not as important as the life who holds more power. Guys, that's Nazi logic. It's Nazi logic. It's the logic that our forefathers used to enslave people for labor. They are human, but less human. You see, Dr. King Dr. Martin Luther King, we so admire him, but do you know what? He was the unpopular one, standing for equality of life, that everyone deserves life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness. We, we, we believe that we're wrong because we're the minority, but the reality is every single movement from slavery all the way to the civil rights movement and women's, and women's rights, all the civil rights movements, these were all ushered in by a minority of Christians who decided that all life under God is equal. 
All life under God is equal. Some would argue, well, it's my body. I can do what I want with it. The government shouldn't tell me what to do with my body, but do you know what they do all the time? Try driving home naked and see where it gets you. (laughs) The government's allowed to tell you what to do with your body. They do all the time. I can't do whatever I want with my body. If it harms other human beings, I can't do it. I don't have that much right within my body just because I want to do something. And, and, and so to say, oh, it's my buddy, the government can't legislate that stuff. No, that's, that's, that's baloney. They do it all the time. And we're happy for it. We are. We're happy that, well, ladies and gentlemen, we're happy that not every freak can just do whatever they want with their body. Yes, amen? So that logic's out the window as well. That logic's completely out the window as well. Guys, we, we, we can't give in to this type of logic. It's illogical. It's irrational. And, and so let's, let's put out the spirituality in it. Let, let's, let's take out biblicy. Let, let's, let's take that out. Let's take out science as well. Logically. Doesn't make sense. And I'll give you two more examples to prove my point, and then we'll move on to the lighter stuff, okay? Uh, I'll give you two more examples, okay? Give you two more examples. In the state of Florida... Touching or messing with a sea turtle egg will result in a $100,000 fine or a year in prison. Yeah. If you go to the beach and you see a sea turtle egg and you pick it up, you pick it up, do whatever you want with it, $100,000 fine, $100, fine. However, the taxpayers of Florida pay for abortions. Logic? Do you see where we kind of screwed up a little bit? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one more example that saddens me even more. And, and many of you are already aware of this, but I want to make you aware that in 38 states, 38 out of our 50 states, we have legal... We have fetal homicide laws. I'll give you an example. Give you an example of a fetal homicide law and a fetal homicide case. If a woman is pregnant and on her way to the abortion clinic to drive to go get an abortion and a man hits her in her car and the baby dies inside of her, he can be sentenced to over 50 years in prison for homicide. That woman was about to go abort her baby, but the man who accidentally killed her, did the job for her, gets over 50 years in prison. Fetal homicide law. So we see how logic has escaped this rationale. So so call yourself enlightened all you want for being pro-choice. It's not a logical conclusion you can come to. We have to, we have to, we have to just throw out all logic We have to throw out all spirituality. We have to throw out our Bibles as well. And I'm not saying this, guys, to condemn. This is is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And and, and the point of this is not to berate anyone. The point of this is I'm I'm not pitching any specific agenda besides Jesus's. We as Christians need to be on the right side of history. twisted logic. It's a Nazi logic. 
It is white supremacist logic. And if you look in to the history of Planned Parenthood, you'll find way dirtier stuff than I'm bringing up to you right now. For the sake of the cleanliness of the pulpit, I'm not mentioning so much. Every great change in this nation has been a result of the minority rising up and standing for what is right. Every great movement, believe it or not, the majority of this country believe that Martin Luther King Jr. was insane and radical and bigoted. That he had no place speaking up. And I'm not exalting Martin Luther King Jr. above Jesus, but he was definitely a vessel of him, amen? I think we could all agree, none of us look back and like, ah, oh, Dr. King, right? <laughs> Dang you, right? Like, none of us are like, ah, oh, <laughs> Like, you know, it, it, no, nobody's like that anymore. But you better believe that there's some people who look back because they were, they were adults in that era and they look back and they're like, I wish I could have done more. You better believe there's some people that just, I can't believe I didn't do more. Or I can't believe I was on the wrong side of history. You see, this is not going to be a very sexy stance, guys. It's not going to be something that looks cool. But as I said before, as Paul says, for if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Like guys, I've said this before. And for those of you that know me personally, you're not a Christian to look cool. Man, you're not a Christian to look cool. All right, you're not, you're not a Christian to look cool. All right, it's not, some Christians try to look cool and then they make, end up making just really bad music and really bad inspirational posters, right? <laughs> just, just, it's just lame anytime a Christian tries to be cool. We're not. However, however, when the world falls down into a pit of its own despair and filth, who is there to clean it? Christians. And you know what? We're berated. We're called, we're called narrow-minded. But at the end of the day, there's a few things we need to do. It's our duty to our God. We want to worship him because he served us in such grand ways. We need to fight for those he loves and he holds dear. As we fight for the souls of men and women, so we will fight for the souls of those unborn children. We are supposed to make disciples of all nations. How many disciples will there be? And guys, how many disciples will there be when over 53 million children in America have died since 1963? The biggest Holocaust this country has ever seen, this world has ever seen, and we are silent. And I called it a Holocaust because that's what it is. And I don't want to get bigoted on you. And I don't want to bash this in your head because I know some of you have been deeply affected by this, which makes your testimony all the more valuable in the fight for life. Some of you have been like, how can God forgive me? I was a part of this. I condone this. And my brother, my sister, my husband, my wife, I've been a part of this. I got an abortion myself. I... How can the Lord ever forgive me? No, no, get that out of your head. He loves you. He forgives you. He wants you and he wants to use your testimony in this fight for life. He wants to use it. 
And so Christians, there's a few things. I have three things that we need to do. Three simple but profound things we need to do. We need to pray, first of all. We need to pray. We need to pray. It is painfully obvious that abortion isn't rational. It's self-centered. It's not rational. Pray for the souls and the minds of the people. I'll give you one example. Um, uh, you know, uh, our, our pastor, Pastor Rob, the senior pastor of this church, you know, I have his full permission to give his testimony. He gives it all the time. But he was supposed to be aborted. And, and his mom was looking into places where, where she can get a, an abortion, a clean one, right? She had gotten several abortions before. Our pastor, he was in the womb. Mom, ready to give an abortion. She confided in a woman. And she didn't say anything. But she went with all of her friends and they prayed for her. And that woman, she invited Pastor Rob's mother, Pastor Rob in her, in her womb, invited her over, just have lunch. And lo and behold, she walked into a baby shower <laughs> where these women were celebrating the life that was residing in her that she was about to terminate. And so, and so that woman, she couldn't, she couldn't go through with it. Pastor Rob's mom, she couldn't go through with it. So she had him, and we have God Speak Albert Chapel, right? Amen, right? We need to pray. We need to pray. First thing we need to do, guys, we need to pray for these people. We need to pray for the minds and the hearts. Prayer always comes before legislation. I'm going to tell you that. Prayer comes before preaching every time. Because it is in prayer where you will align your will with the Lord's and you will learn to have a loving and tender heart. Those who don't pray before they speak usually speak wrongly. That's where you see the people in front of Planned Parenthood with those disastrous signs to these people and to these young women who are going through the hardest time in their lives and all they have to say is abortions, murder. How dare they? And so the first thing we need to do is pray. Second thing we need to do, and like I said, guys, I'm, I'm an independent, right? I'm, I'm not pushing any type of political agenda besides Jesus's, but the second thing we need to do, this should affect the way we vote. This should affect the way we vote. Listen, listen. If there is an economist that is running for state senator, this economist, he is brilliant. The most brilliant mind this nation has ever seen. And he just knows how to get this state out of debt. He just knows how to get this entire country out of debt. He has a perfect plan. It is flawless. But he says, do you know what? In order for this to happen, I think we need to give less rights to women. I think we need to put blacks back into slavery. And then our country will be totally okay. Economically, it'll work out fine. For conven- it, it, it will just work perfect. How many of you would vote for him? None of you, right? None, none of us would ever do that. So likewise, abortion must weigh in on how we vote, Amen. how we vote. And, uh, and listen, I'm, you vote according to your political party and, and your beliefs and where you believe this country could go. But do you know what? If there's someone who's in direct opposition against life, this should bear weight on the way we vote. It should really bear weight. Christians, historically, we don't vote a lot. But it's us who usually change history in this manner. 
especially in this country, that allows for these religious liberties. They want to take advantage of it. It's a tool of God. If it gets taken away, you know, who cares? Like, we, Jesus is all we need, you know? But while we have this gift, might as well use it. While we still have a democratic republic, we might as well use it, right? It might not be around for very much longer, right? So might as well use it now, yeah? So this should affect the way we vote. It should affect the way we vote. And third, and I'll end with this. Love. Love people. Love people. Oh, love people, guys. Um, I got in a very, you know, at school, you know, I, inevitably, if you're a college student and you stand for these types of things, inevitably you get into debates and arguments. It just, just happens. And so I was getting in this, it wasn't an argument. I, I, I genuinely love this guy. And, you know, I was talking to him and he was just, he was really, he, he was talking to me like I, I, I was, I was evil, right? Like, how dare you? It, it, do you have any idea? You, you hate women. And, and he was just talking to me, just getting my stance on pro-life. And, and, and lovingly, I told him this. And it wasn't to puff up my own pride, but it was, it was to put him in this right perspective. I said, listen, you call me a woman hater. You call me a chauvinist. You call me all of these things because I'm pro-life. But the fact of the matter is, I volunteered at the CPC. I volunteered at Gabriel's house. I've, I've spoken and prayed with women that are going through hard times. What have you done? What have you done besides complain? What have you done besides call people names? And so we, we can claim to be pro-life all we want, but that's, that's not enough. We need to love people. We need to go out of our way to love the widows and the orphans. Because if these people have no one to lean on, inevitably they're, they're going to have no other choice but to abort their children. If we continue to be silent, we continue to do nothing. I'll end with Matthew chapter 25. I'll have it up here. It's going to be a long one, but I think it has the proper effect. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him. We will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he, will see, he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. When the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So, so God is saying, you have done all these things for me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was cold and had no clothes, you gave me shelter. You visited me when I was in prison. But listen to the next one in verse 37. In verse 37, we see this. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? So, so, so these righteous, they're, they're saying this. They're saying, God, wait, wait a second. We never, we never saw you. Like, you're God. You're never sick. 
(laughs) You're God. We don't need to feed you. We don't need to clothe you. We don't need to help you. And we don't need to visit you when you're in despair and when you're in prison. You're God. You don't need these things. But in verse 40, God says this, and the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did to the one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his great angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in naked and you did not clothe me sick in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him saying, Lord, did we not see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And do we not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it for me. So guys, we claim to be Christians and want to do this epic work for the Lord. But God says, anything you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. And it's our call It's our call as Christians to look at those that are suffering, that those who have been victims of abuse, those who are hungry, those who need help, it is our call to serve the Lord in this manner, to help the least of these. That's the love that God desires. Us marching as much as we want, us picketing as much as we want, us posting angry things on Facebook as much as we want God doesn't care. He doesn't care. He wants you to minister to the least of these. He wants you to minister to the least of these. He wants you to feed those who are hungry, clothe those who need clothing, help those who are sick. And lastly, I would say, oh, Christian, let's live life. If we're proponents of life and we claim to love life, then let us live life. Stop being so miserable and stop saying you need to love life, but hate your own. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up and we're going to worship. We're going to worship as those who love life and cherish life. And, and, And one of the first steps to being a proponent of life and defending life is to live a life worth living by caring for the least of these, by visiting the CPC every once in a while, Conejo Pregnancy Center. Visit a pregnancy center in your area. Help women who are in need. Be on the hotline that they, hotlines that they have. It takes like an hour, guys, to volunteer. I've walked through these, th- these things. Women don't usually want to be ministered by the 20-year-old guy because that's usually the type of people that do this to them, right? So I, I, I kind of stay in the background, right? I kind of like, I help out and I clean or, you know, I'll, I'll be, you know, I was on the board for a while, like at the CPC and I'll help you with, you know, this stuff and I'll, I'll go to schools and, and do your part. Wherever you feel like you can help in this fight for life, but don't just sit there and like, oh, I understand. Now let's, let's, let's care for the least of these and let's live a life that's worth living. Stop being miserable, right? Stop hating life so much, guys. No matter how busy or stressful it is, no matter how many trials hit, you're breathing. Not everyone can say that. Man, let's breathe in. This grace that God's given us. And as we worship, breathe in God's grace, breathe out his praise.
Breathe in his grace, breathe out his praise. And what we do here and as we worship, we're going to do it out there in the world. We're going to do it in our schools. We're going to do it in our jobs. And people are going to say they love life. They love life. So in any matter of life that I have questions about, I'll go to them. Because those Christians, they know how to live life. Stop being boring. Start loving our God and loving life. Amen. Lord, we love you. We worship you. You're so worthy. And God, we, we just pray for all those children. God, even now, there's, there's, there's women just in such turmoil and torn as to what to do. I pray your Holy Spirit, your comforting power, Father, on them. I pray that you'd empower us as Christians to get up off of our seats and start moving and dancing and shaking to the grooving, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that we would love life with you, live life with you, cherish life with you. And as we, as we take communion, Lord, that we remember the life that you gave, how precious it was. And you laid it down. You laid down your life so that we might live life. Let us never take that for granted as we take communion and we partake in the representation of your body that was broken and your blood that was shed. Oh, Lord, may we be reminded of how precious the life you've given us is and use it to change and transform this nation for the better. Oh, Lord, use us. Oh, Lord, take these hands and take this heart and transform them, Jesus. May what we believe in our hearts go into our hands. May what we do with our hands represent the state of our heart, which is in complete worship of you. Oh, Lord. I pray for those who have been affected by abortion and and everything that surrounds that, Lord. I pray for healing. I pray for redemption. I pray that they wouldn't think themselves any lower, but they would realize that that you are good, you are forgiving, you are gracious, and you want to use them so mightily. We love you, Lord. We give you this night and we worship you wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen.